Hello everybody, welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and you are joining us for part six, the last episode of our Franklin Scandal coverage. When we left off last episode, things were looking bleak for the Franklin Committee investigation. Lead investigator Gary Caridori had put together 21 hours of videotaped interviews with three alleged victims. These testimonies alleged that the former manager of the Franklin Credit Union and rising star in the GOP, Lawrence King, as well as millionaire businessman Alan Baer, Omaha Police Chief Robert Wadman, Omaha World Herald CEO Harold Anderson, and other members of the Upper Crust maintained a network pandering underage child prostitutes around the country, among other crimes. Two of the three alleged victims who had provided interviews to Caridori, uh, Troy Boner and Danny King, both recounted their formal statements before the federal grand jury after receiving pressure from the FBI to do so. The FBI continued to harass the third alleged victim, Alicia Owen, who remained in solitary confinement at the time. Larry King himself had been excused from appearing before the court. He was declared mentally unfit for trial and sent to a psychiatric facility. Omaha World Herald reporter Peter Citron and his massive cache of child pornography was deemed inadmissible in court as part of the conditions of his sentencing on charges of child molestation. On top of all of that, on a nightly basis, the media was attacking the character of the alleged victims who had come forward, which, in Caridori's view, was a strategy of intimidation against other would-be informants who might testify against King and his powerful associates. By May of 1990, Caridori had little left to go on anymore except a list of leads uh, of varying potential value. However, by following up on these leads, he was able to videotape a fourth statement. He got the statement from Paul Bonacci, a name gleaned from someone in the Concerned Parents Activist Group. Paul was 23 years old at the time and incarcerated in the Lincoln Correctional Center. He had been charged with two counts of sexual assault on a child that previous November, just weeks before the fall of the Franklin Credit Union. His victims had been two boys aged 13 and 9. He claimed, like Alicia, that he had been warned to keep quiet while on the inside. A court-appointed psychiatrist had determined that Bonacci was not a mentally disordered sex offender, but rather that he suffered from what was known then as multiple personality disorder. Today, this condition would be called Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. According to the psychiatrist, Paul had 20 or more alternates, several of them well-formed, and as much or more so than Paul himself. Each of these alternates had its own individual identity, name, and characteristics, including sexual orientation. Some were even colorblind. The psychiatrist reported that the principal personality, Paul, has no wish to molest children, is quite religious, and is not inclined to have homosexual interests. The MPD diagnosis was a shock to Paul, and he found it difficult to accept. Paul had been born in the Omaha area, the second youngest of six kids. His parents divorced when he was a toddler, and he had minimal contact with his biological father during his formative years. His mother's second husband beat him and his siblings, and Paul reported having memories of him chopping up their toys with an axe. 
This man and Paul's mother later divorced after he severely battered her. His mother's third husband did not abuse Paul, but simply ignored him. At the age of six, he began to complain that a neighbor was repeatedly molesting him. They disregarded these pleas. Starting in the third grade, he began to, quote, lose time. Paul would black out, and an alternate would take over. By the age of nine or ten, he was involved with drugs and prostitution. He was shown a park by his friends where pedophiles cruised for children. His experiences there were all under alternate personalities. By the age of 12, his psychiatrist wrote, Paul reported involvement in Satanism as well. Caridori and his assistant Ormiston videotaped Paul's seven-hour testimony at the Lincoln Correctional Center. At the time of the recording, he had not yet received psychiatric treatment for his MPD, and his affect throughout the interview was flat and emotionless as he recounted tales of unfathomable abuse. He named the same abusers as the previous informants and identified the same settings. He affirmed that he met all three of the other alleged victims at the Twin Towers in 1983 or 4, and that he had several sexual encounters with Citron, Bear, and Larry King there. He was able to name a child victim of Citron's that had not been released to the media. He corroborated Alicia on the name of King's photographer, Rusty Nelson. He showed Caridori a scar left by a knife and cigarette burns on his arms, and claimed to have them on his privates as well. He named Larry King both as a perpetrator and a pedophilic pimp who had taken him on possibly 300 flights around the country as an underage prostitute and mentioned several nuances about King or his network that were also mentioned by Alicia, Troy, or Danny. His catatonic expression changed only once during the seven-hour interview when he broke down in tears while recalling the abuse and murder of a young boy named Jeremy. Paul and some other boys were delivered to a, quote, little Italian guy identified as the producer and who claimed that his name was Hunter Thompson. This man was accompanied by a camera crew and a young boy they called Jeremy. They said Jeremy had been kidnapped and stuffed him into a cage. Paul described him as appearing roughly 12 years old with braces on his teeth. The men filmed themselves as they forced themselves sexually on Jeremy, beat him, and then shot him in the head. Paul described other scenes like this, and he recounted his own suicide attempts. He also implicated Larry King in a DC blackmail operation. He said that he made numerous trips with King to be used as a boy toy for politicians and other power brokers who were then compromised. Caridori asked him to name the compromised politicians, and he could only identify one, a member of the U.S. Congress. Prior to Paul's interview with Caridori, OPD detectives had actually interviewed him first, earlier that year. Paul said that he told the Omaha police many of the same things that he told Caridori. He said he gave them a diary containing detailed accounts of his abuse, including the names of his abusers, and it even contained a pornographic picture of himself and Alan Bear. The OPD said they investigated the allegations but could not corroborate them. They dismissed him as a pathological liar. Paul said the OPD threatened him to recant his allegations. Despite the numerous claims he made that were corroborated by the other victims' accounts, 
Paul also made many contradictory statements. In terms of veracity, Caridori gave him a 7.5 out of 10. When called to testify, his court-appointed psychiatrist said that Paul's contradictory statements don't necessarily mean that he is lying, but rather that they are a manifestation of his MPD. His various alternate personalities might have different recollections of events, and they might understand the events differently. In June, the Franklin Committee and Caridori assembled at the State House. A transcript reveals that the committee members were shell-shocked by the overwhelmingly negative media attention and law enforcement affronts, but were resolved to talk through their qualms and suspicions to avoid the descent into a bunker mentality. Caridori voiced a reluctance to turn over evidence to state and federal law enforcement and expressed true heartbreak at his realization that the NSP, the Nebraska State Patrol, were colluding with the FBI to crush his investigation, as he treasured his years there. The assembly also discussed the strange recurring behavior of prospective witnesses who would earnestly consent to testify before the committee, but then, on the day of their appointment, they disappeared or refused to show up. They also discussed a shared perception that individuals who assisted the committee tended to find themselves in trouble with the authorities. These remarks came soon after a discussion about a former Franklin Credit Union executive, Noel Seltzer, who granted Caridori a formal interview and then alleged that FBI agents warned him to keep his mouth shut. He was later indicted for tax fraud because of his work selling Larry King's CDs at the credit union. Because the credit union did not provide him with income statements in 1986 and 1987, a claim that was made by other executives as well, he resorted to estimating his income and was found to be underreporting. This earned him seven months in prison, as opposed to the three years of probation received by a colleague who had underreported his income by $60,000 more than Seltzer did. This colleague had not granted an interview to Caridori. Caridori began to feel that the walls were closing in. He received a call from Alicia that the FBI had tried to entice her by saying that if she changed her story, they could go after Caridori for fabricating the investigation. He had seen how easily Danny and Troy crumbled before the FBI and was not sure how long he could rely on Alicia and Paul. He needed something more than vulnerable informants' testimonies. He needed something concrete. The victims all alleged that the events they described had been photographed, and he needed those pictures. He needed to find King's photographer, Rusty Nelson. Nick Bryant writes that Rusty Nelson was his second interview after, quote, leaping into the Franklin rabbit hole, and reports that he is a highly unreliable witness. The interview with Nelson had been set up by John DeCamp, which Bryant found odd given the unsavory picture painted of Nelson in DeCamp's book. DeCamp and Nelson had a very strange association. Nelson fled Nebraska after the collapse of the credit union and became a drifter, and he eventually was arrested in Oregon for the possession of child pornography. After the arrest, DeCamp received a phone call from Oregon law enforcement, apparently because a copy of his book was found in Rusty's van. He also said that Nelson's, quote, family had phoned him requesting legal assistance. DeCamp traveled to Oregon and was permitted to peruse the pictures seized from the van under police supervision. He said that if the pictures were properly identified and validated, they would almost certainly prove the truth of the children's stories. 
Despite DeCamp's efforts to preserve the pictures, they were destroyed. Nelson told Bryant that he was contacted by Caridori in 1990 through a family member when he was in New Mexico and agreed to meet in Chicago to provide him with incriminating pictures that would blow the case wide open. On July 9th, Caridori and his 8-year-old son, AJ, flew his single-engine airplane from Lincoln to Chicago, ostensibly to attend the Major League Baseball All-Star game the next day. He had told his wife, however, that he was going to Chicago to meet Rusty Nelson before the game. Caridori made a number of phone calls upon his arrival in Chicago to his wife, to State Senator Lauren Schmidt of the Franklin Committee, to Alicia Owens' mother Donna, and to Paul Rodriguez, a reporter for the Washington Times who is working the beat on human trafficking in D.C. He informed Rodriguez that he was on the verge of acquiring pictures that would corroborate the victim's stories. He was less candid with his wife, perhaps because of his caution to avoid wiretaps on his home phone line, but he conveyed that the trip had been a success. He told Schmidt that, quote, we got them by the short hairs, and he told Donna Owen that she would be, quote, the happiest mother in the world when he got back from Chicago. Nelson said he drove through the night from the Albuquerque area to meet Caridori in Chicago. According to him, they met briefly, he handed over the pictures, and then he left. Caridori and AJ did attend the All-Star game, which ended just before midnight, and a couple hours later, they flew out of the Midway airport. Approximately an hour after they took off, Caridori's plane crashed in a cornfield belonging to farmer Harold Cameron, who lived near Ashton, Illinois. After hearing the sound of a plane and then an explosion, Cameron drove around his property looking for the crash site. He could not find it in the dark, but at daybreak, the plane was spotted by a medical helicopter. Deputies from the Lee County Sheriff's Department were first responders and found the remains of Gary and A.J. Caridori. Parts of the plane were scattered up to 1,800 feet from the fuselage, and the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, stated almost immediately that the plane broke up in flight because of the debris strewn over such a large area, but what the, quote, exact mechanism for the breakup was is unknown. Within a few days, the NTSB and Lee County Sheriff announced that the crash entailed no sign of foul play or sabotage and evidenced no sign of an onboard explosion, but at the same time, they provided no explanation for the plane breaking apart in midair. Strangely, the back seats of the plane were never recovered. Senator Schmidt would later write a letter to the NTSB. Quote, I do not know anything about sabotage but I've been told that a phosphorus-type bomb would, in fact, vaporize metal and any other material with which it came in contact, and that unless someone knew what they were looking for, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to detect. I'm sure there will be those who will scoff at such a suggestion, but there have been entirely too many violent deaths associated with this investigation. The NTSB's final report came out two years after the fact. It determined that the crash occurred at 2.21 a.m. and that Caridori lost control of the plane for an unknown reason, but it cited pilot fatigue and probable spatial disorientation of the pilot and or instrumental malfunction as likely causes. 
In Caridori's attempt to recover from uncontrolled flight, the wings of his Piper Saratoga plane snapped off due to an overload of stress. The personal effects of Caridori and his son were salvaged by the NTSB and returned to Sandy, his wife. AJ's little backpack and Caridori's 35mm camera were relatively undamaged, but the film had been removed from the camera and developed before being returned. Caridori's leather briefcase was never returned. His wife had given it to him as a birthday present, and it, quote, never left his side throughout the Franklin investigation. She felt that if he had obtained pictures in Chicago, they definitely would have been in his briefcase. The media continued their assault on Caridori's credibility even after his death. On July 12th, the World Herald published an article titled, Caridori Faced Criticism of Probe, Utah Firm, reporting on the hiring of an unlicensed security guard by Caridori's company, Caracor. The day of the crash, friends and family gathered in Caridori's home to grieve. Troy Boner made several phone calls during the day, but Sandy was in no mood to deal with him. Eventually, she decided to take one of his calls. Troy was in tears, admitting that Caridori had not coached him during the interview. He said that he had been threatened into recanting his testimony. Troy promised to march into the FBI and approach the media to set the record straight. He did, in fact, do this, but he claims the FBI agents he spoke to in Omaha only laughed in his face. A television reporter that he approached also did not want to deal with him. The following day, both Sandy Caridori and Karen Ormiston became the targets of harassment. Ormiston found nails placed behind the tires of her pickup truck. Sandy, somehow finding the strength to visit Caricor offices in order to assure its employees that the business would not be folding, was shocked to find FBI agents standing in Ormiston's office. The FBI had served Caricor with a subpoena that morning, ordering it to surrender any and all Franklin evidence to federal authorities. They also wanted Caridori's expenses, Caricor's payroll records, invoices, telephone records, etc. The feds defended the timing of the subpoena by stating that it's not always possible, quote, to be polite, and that they had been building a corruption case against Caridori for a while. The FBI agents at Caricor confirmed to Sandy that Troy had visited them, but that they could not waste their time on him. He has lost all credibility, they told her. Caridori's death proved to be the final nail in the coffin for the investigation, although it hobbled along a little while further. Former CIA director William Colby was hired to replace him. In 1975, Colby had appeared before the church committee and, in front of a national television audience, confessed to assassination initiatives and mind control programs that had been kept secret from the American public. He was fired from his position as CIA director by President Ford and replaced by then-envoy to China, George H.W. Bush. Some of the members of the Franklin Committee suspected that King's pandering enterprise might be connected to the CIA and that Colby would be able to shed light on that. Colby proved to be reluctant to push the investigation meaningfully forward and declined to discuss Caridori's death even years later, when interviewed in a documentary about the Franklin scandal named The Conspiracy of Silence. He balked at the idea that Caridori's death had been a murder, but according to John DeCamp, 
Colby disclosed to him shortly before his death that he had become disillusioned with the CIA's use of children for sinister agendas and was determined to make the agency accountable for its abuses. Some years later, he was reported missing on a cold, blustery night. He reportedly went canoeing in the Wicomico River while the winds were gusting at 25 miles per hour. His canoe was discovered the next day on the sandbar, but Colby himself was nowhere to be found. A U.S. Coast Guard investigator found that his radio and computer were still on in his room, and there were dinner items on the table, as if left there mid-meal. A month later, after a thorough search with dogs, sonar equipment, and drag lines that turned up nothing, his body appeared in the same location as the canoe, clad in khaki pants, a blue and white shirt, and a windbreaker, but no shoes. Two weeks after Caradori's demise, the Douglas County Grand Jury released its 43-page report on the Franklin case. The Omaha World-Herald reported on it with the following headline, Grand Jury says abuse stories were a carefully crafted hoax, three indicted, many rumors debunked. The report discussed its deliberations. Over 82 days, the grand jury reviewed 395 exhibits, including 136 subpoenas, the hearing of 76 witnesses, and the viewing of over 30 hours of videotape. On the first page, the report says, Two of the victims recanted their video statements and testified that a third victim, Alicia Owen, was perpetrating a hoax for personal gain. It declared that all Lawrence King-related child abuse allegations were a, quote, carefully crafted hoax, but never specified who actually crafted it. The evidence did not align with the report's conclusions. For example, it maintained the truth of Troy's account in terms of calling Alicia to get their story straight, but it also presents phone records from the Caracor offices in the York prison, which show that no such call was made. The grand jury would then go on to indict Alicia Owen on eight counts of perjury and Paul Bonacci on three counts of perjury. Alicia's indictments were related to her statements about then-OPD chief Robert Wadman and others, and Paul was indicted on statements pertaining to his witnessing of these events. Each count carried a maximum sentence of 20 years, meaning that Alicia was looking at 160 years in prison and Paul was looking at 60. Alan Bayer was indicted on two accounts of adult pandering, and his charges were reduced to a misdemeanor. In the end, he was fined $500. Shortly afterwards, the Omaha World-Herald published an editorial calling the Franklin Committee a disgrace to Nebraska, and excoriated the recently deceased investigator Gary Caradori. Alicia Owen remained in solitary confinement through to the fall of 1991, around the time that her 16-year-old brother Aaron was arrested for car theft. Douglas County elected to try him as an adult. He was sentenced to between four and seven years in prison. Shortly after the sentencing, he hanged himself in his cell. He had slash marks on both wrists, a bone-deep gash on his forehead, and a large bruise under his left eye. The official account essentially found that he succumbed to extreme masochism before committing suicide. Aaron signed his suicide note, AJ, a name that he did not go by. 
However, AJ was, of course, the name of Gary Caradori's late son, who had died with him in the plane crash. Two and a half months later, Troy Boner's younger brother, Sean, shot himself in the head, allegedly while playing Russian roulette. In the years since then, Troy Boner has come forward, confessing in an affidavit about lying at the grand jury hearings, lying at Alicia Owens' perjury trial, and overall lying when he recanted his original statements to Gary Caridori. He wrote that he lied because he believed, and still believed, that it was a lie-or-die situation. He wrote that he felt his brother's death was a murder designed to ensure his testimony at Alicia's trial. Alicia was finally paroled from prison in the year 2000. Nick Bryant's book was written in the aftermath of all this, and he essentially picked up the case where Caridori left it. He goes into great detail in his book, The Franklin Scandal, from which the information in this series has been sourced. One connection he explores is between King's Network in Omaha and the underworld of Washington, D.C. Five sources in his book, including a police detective and Washington Times reporter Paul Rodriguez, one of the last people who talked to Caridori over the phone before his death, all claim the same man to be King's partner in D.C., Craig Spence. The New York Times profiled Craig Spence in 1982 in an article named Have Names, Will Open Right Door. There, they described the then 41-year-old Spence as something of a mystery man, and that the svelte Spence was fond of dressing as an Edwardian dandy. He had a penchant for capes, stretch limos, and brawny bodyguards. He answered phone calls by saying, This is God. Speak. After being arrested for driving under the influence, he reported his occupation to the police as millionaire. The article displayed a picture of him. He had an unblemished, boyish face that seemed in contrast to his receding brown hair and mustache. His diverse list of occupations included consultant, party host, registered foreign agent for Japan, and, last but not least, research journalist. Some of his business associates said that he was, quote, extremely conservative in his political views and secretive about his work, refusing to disclose the identity of his clients. The profile made a point of discussing his ability to master the social and political chemistry of Washington and his ability to assemble policymakers, power brokers, and opinion shapers at parties he threw in his posh Victorian home on Wyoming Avenue in D.C.'s upscale Colorama neighborhood. These were black tie affairs with guest lists that read like a who's who of Congress, government, and journalism. His parties throughout the 80s boasted of guests like Ted Koppel and William Safe, Senators John Glenn of Ohio and Frank Murkowski of Alaska, former Ambassadors Robert Neumann, Elliot Richardson and John Lilly, disgraced former Attorney General John Mitchell, and lastly, numerous high-ranking military and intelligence officials, including CIA Director William Casey. Spence once threw a birthday bash for Roy Cohn, who we discussed extensively a few years ago on episode 26, as a possible predecessor to Jeffrey Epstein. 
Casey was made the guest of honor for the occasion, and you may recall that Larry King boasted of his own friendship with William Casey in a puff piece published before King gained notoriety for the Franklin scandal. Popular consensus suggests that Craig Spence was born in upstate New York, but of course he claimed to have been sprung from New England Brahmins. He attended Syracuse University before transferring to Boston College. A former classmate recalled him tooling around campus in a Vespa, listening to folk music and coffee houses, and covering his tuition with student loans. Another former classmate recalls Spence faking an Australian accent and passing himself off as an exchange student. In 1963, Spence graduated from Boston College with a degree in communications and broadcasting. He was hired by Massachusetts governor as a press assistant. He then became a press secretary for Massachusetts State Speaker before landing a job as a correspondent for New York's WCBS. Eventually, he signed up as a Vietnam correspondent for ABC TV in 1969. You may recall that Larry King was stationed in Southeast Asia with the Air Force between 1965 and 1969. In Vietnam, Spence was known to disappear for weeks at a time, and one fellow correspondent remarked that he, quote, always looked like he had learned something that no one else knew. He always seemed to be on the inside track. As a Vietnam correspondent, Spence began to display the bombast that would characterize his later life. The U.S. Army's afternoon press briefings were sarcastically referred to by correspondents as five o'clock follies. Spence liked to grandstand at these briefings, asking the Army personnel snide and provocative questions that would disrupt them. In 1970, he left ABC and moved to Tokyo, where he worked ostensibly as a freelance radio correspondent through the early and mid-70s. In Japan, he developed a business relationship with politician Motu Shina, president of Policy Study Group, whose primary objective was to encourage Japanese business interests by teaming Japanese businessmen with influential Americans and captains of industry. Shina would become Spence's first documented victim of blackmail. In 1979, Spence and Sheena signed a formal agreement that Spence would serve as an overseas representative of PSG and receive a baseline salary of $10,000 a month. Sheena also put up money for Spence to buy his showpiece Kalorama home. This served as Spence's residence, as well as Sheena's embassy in D.C. and the American headquarters of PSG. Sheena was an arch-conservative from a noble family, the son of a wealthy businessman who was considered a behind-the-scenes kingmaker and a rising star in Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party. It was Sheena who was able to convince leaders of his party to break Japan's post-war 1% cap on defense spending to cooperate with President Reagan's missile defense initiatives. His path to political stardom was stymied, however, by bad press, in large part a result of his relationship with Craig Spence. But the most damning press revolved around accusations that he had passed on U.S. military secrets to the Soviets, secrets that he had acquired while courting various U.S. defense contractors as a publicly hawkish politician. By 1983, the relationship between Spence and Sheena had gone sour. Sheena demanded Spence vacate his D.C. premises, and the two sued each other. Spence knew that the money Sheena had put up for the property had been illegally acquired from Hong Kong, 
and the following year, he successfully obtained a subpoena of Sheena's finances. He pretty much blackmailed the Japanese client, said a business associate quoted in the Washington Times. To avoid any further damage to his reputation, Sheena dropped the suit against Spence. However, the negative press about both Sheena and Spence during those two years sparked concern in D.C. Some began to surmise that it might have been Spence, rather than the defense contractors who provided Sheena with the secrets that were turned over to the Soviets. Republican congresswoman voiced these concerns on the House floor, and Sheena disclosed in court that he had been advised to avoid lodging at Spence's house, which could be, quote, damaging to his reputation. In 1989, prior to the shakeup in Nebraska, the, it should be noted, Mooney-owned and conservative-leaning Washington Times reported in an article entitled Power Brokers Serve Drugs and Sex at Parties Bugged for Blackmail, extensive corroboration that Craig Spence's home was bugged for audiovisual surveillance. The Times went on to publish a series of articles concerning Craig Spence and his alleged blackmail operations. They claimed that Spence was a blackmailer who specialized in compromising the powerful, and that he spent thousands a month on prostitutes, and that partygoers at his home would be provided with whatever tickled their fancy, even children. According to interviews conducted by the Washington Times reporters, Spence had an eight-foot-long two-way mirror overlooking his library that gave him a prime vantage point for spying on guests. Bugs were also scattered throughout various nooks and crannies within his house. A Georgetown law professor and longtime friend of Spence's remembered being at Spence's home and having a conversation with a second friend of Spence's about their host's seeming physical deterioration, as Spence was HIV positive. We were sitting in a corner, talking about our mutual concern about Craig's physical condition, said the law professor. He came down later and said he had been listening to us and didn't appreciate it at all. The other friend, a veteran NBC and CBS correspondent, corroborated the law professor's story. A business associate of Spence's told the reporters that Spence delivered him to one of his parties in a limousine, and when he arrived at the party, a number of young men made friendly overtures toward him. I didn't bite. It's not my inclination, said the business associate but he too remarked on Spence's predilection for blackmail. He was blackmailing people. He was taping people and blackmailing them. A former Reagan administration official who worked at the U.S. Information Agency attended soirees at Spence's home, and he disclosed to Washington Times reporters that he personally observed a cornucopia of recording and taping equipment. It was my clear impression that the house was bugged, he said. An Air Force sergeant, whom Spence employed as a bodyguard, corroborated accounts of blackmail. The house was definitely bugged. I can't say what he was doing with the information, I don't know that, but he was recording what occurred there. I had been told by several prostitutes, along with law enforcement, that there were connections between Craig Spence and Larry King, Times reporter Rodriguez told Bryant. The allegations were that Spence and King hosted parties and were involved in a variety of nefarious activities. The allegations included Spence and King hosting blackmail sex parties that included minors and illegal drug use. Spence would divulge to Washington Times reporters that friendly intelligence agents bugged all the parties at his Calorama home, and he repeatedly alluded to the fact that he was in the CIA. 
Rodriguez and his fellow reporters looked into Spence's claims of being CIA. Rodriguez told Bryant that we had sources disclose that Spence wasn't a direct employee of the CIA, but they confirmed Spence was a CIA asset. On June 29th of 1989, the Washington Times ran a salacious story that highlighted Spence's astonishing ability to play the puppeteer and pull strings. Homosexual Prostitution Inquiry Ensnares VIPs with Reagan Bush. The article's subheadline read, Callboys Took Midnight Tour of White House. The article reported that Spence arranged a 1 a.m. tour of the White House that included a couple of male hookers. The article also revealed that Spence stopped by DC's ABC Studios shortly before the midnight tour and introduced a 15-year-old boy to his old friend Ted Koppel. The Washington Post quizzed Koppel about his friendship with Spence, but Koppel declined to speak in-depth about Spence, because, Koppel said, that he planned to write a story about him, which has not materialized to this date. The Washington Times disclosed in subsequent articles that Spence arranged similar midnight tours of the White House on at least three additional occasions, and one of the late-night sightseers was a 15-year-old boy. Presidential spokesman Marlon Fitzwater eventually discussed a Secret Service probe into the tours, but maintained the probe didn't raise concerns about the security of the first family. Responding to questions about hustlers roaming the White House in the middle of the night, First Lady Barbara Bush replied that she didn't feel threatened and said it was good that the Washington Post was not pursuing the story. It would later come out that a Secret Service officer purloined some of the White House's Truman China collection for Spence. Spence proudly displayed a plate of the china in his living room. The Secret Service concluded that a uniformed White House officer who moonlighted as a Spence bodyguard had arranged the late-night White House tours. But Spence begged to differ. He implied that they were set up by Donald Gregg, who had been a national security advisor to Bush when he was vice president and became President Bush's ambassador to South Korea. Gregg dismissed Spence's allegation as absolute bull. Gregg later told the Washington Times that he had met Spence once at a party Spence threw for a former prime minister of South Korea. Though Greg said he had only one encounter with Spence, the latter must have made an extremely bad first impression. It disturbs me that he can reach a slimy hand out of the sewer to grab me by the ankle like this, Greg said of Spence. As the Secret Service investigation into Spence's late-night White House tours started to heat up, he would reportedly be targeted with a federal subpoena. The subpoena-wary Spence surreptitiously slipped out of D.C. and was nowhere to be found. Rumors had him surfacing in Florida, Boston, and even New Hampshire. In true Spence fashion, he emerged from the shadows in New York with a bang. The NYPD busted him for possession of a handgun, cocaine, and a crack pipe. On July 31, 1989, the New York police received a frantic phone call from Spence. He had phoned the NYPD from his room at Manhattan's swanky Barbizon Hotel on the Upper East Side. The police intercepted Spence galloping out of his room. Quote, This guy Craig Spence comes running out of the room screaming that the other guy has a gun. As it turned out, Spence just happened to have been smoking a little crack with a 22-year-old male prostitute who attempted to rob him. Spence claimed the kid had taken the gun and intimidated him and snatched $6,000 out of his hand, said a responding police officer. 
Spence was charged with criminal possession of a pistol and possession of an illegal drug. He was thrown in the tombs, an immense jail in lower Manhattan that houses those awaiting arraignment or trial, and then released of his own recognizance three days later. Spence was looking at a maximum sentence of eight years. They put me in the tombs for three days without a phone call, Spence said of the experience. I survived by offering to be the valet to the biggest thug there, a man appropriately named Heavy, and giving him half my bologna sandwich. I had to teach him not to pronounce it valet like some parking attendant. After Spence's arrest in New York, a pair of Washington Times reporters bustled off to the Big Apple, where they located Spence at a friend's ritzy Eastside apartment. The journalists duly noted that the political bigwig looked the worse for wear. Spence had eschewed his trademark Edwardian cut suit for a rumpled and soiled white knit shirt, crumpled khakis, and scuffed-up Reebok running shoes. And he was unshaven. Spence eventually granted the reporters an eight-hour interview that was indeed bizarre. Throughout the interview, Spence clutched a dispenser of double-edged razor blades, eventually dispensing one. He caressed his arm with the razor blade, smiled, and suddenly thrust the razor to the chest of the first reporter and then to the chest of the second reporter. I am not a person to fool with, Spence declared after an uneasy pause. You should know that by now. After Spence threatened the reporters with the razor blade, he launched into a protracted diatribe of self-importance, asserting he had carried out assignments for the CIA on numerous occasions, assignments that were crucial to covert actions in Vietnam, Japan, Central America, and the Middle East. How do you think a little faggot like me moved in the circles I did, Spence asked. It's because I had contacts at the highest levels of this government. They'll deny it, but how do they make me go away? when so many of them have been at my house, at my parties, and at my side. Spence also intimated to the reporters that his various comings and goings exposed by the Washington Times were merely the tip of a vast clandestine iceberg. All this stuff you've uncovered, to be honest with you, is insignificant compared to other things I've done. But I'm not going to tell you those things, and somehow the world will carry on. The two reporters went to dinner with Spence at an Italian restaurant, and then, quote, he disappeared into the night, not to be seen again. Spence laid low for the next couple of months, but in October of 1989, he threw a lavish birthday bash for himself in D.C. The rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated, he said to his friends at the party. Soon thereafter, he had a video postcard delivered to various friends and associates. In the video, Spence was seated on a leather chair in his dark green dining room as he waxed philosophic about the government, intelligence community, life's changing fortunes, and Winston, his Maltese dog, whom he said news reports had slandered as a terrier. The pressures on us over the past several years have been, let us say, significant, he said in the videotape. Keeping a cheerful spirit in the midst of these pressures isn't easy, but Winston's holding up, and I'm working at it. After Spence dished out criticism of the Washington Times, calling it a local cult-owned newspaper, he conveyed a parable about the intelligence community. Some of you may know when it comes to the intelligence community, there is no such thing as coincidence. Now, I'm not sure I've seen the whole picture yet myself. Spence then ended the video on an upbeat patriotic note like Edward R. Morrow signing off. 
I'll close by telling you, I'm sure in the end the truth will come out, and this too will pass. Now, I may be naive about my optimism, but I'm an American, proud of my country, and confident of the fairness of its people. So take heart, good friends, and share that pride and that confidence with me. Good night, and God bless. Two weeks later, he was found dead on a bed in a room at Boston's Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Dressed in a black tuxedo, Walkman headphones around his neck, he had been listening to Mozart's A Little Night Music. He left a suicide note on the room's mirror. Chief, consider this my resignation, effective immediately. As you always said, you can't ask others to make a sacrifice if you are not ready to do the same. Life is duty. God bless America. And to the Ritz, please forgive this inconvenience. Next to his body lay a newspaper clipping about then-CIA Director William Webster's attempts to protect CIA agents summoned to testify before government bodies. The Washington Times reported that Spence had indeed been subpoenaed by a grand jury investigating the 34th place escort service. His death was ruled a suicide by overdose of the antidepressant amitriptyline. So that's the end of our account of uh, the Franklin scandal. There is more to be said about this. If you care to, you can check out Nick Bryant's book. He goes into more detail about Boys Town. He goes into more detail about the trials. Don and I are planning to do a kind of discussion recap episode uh, soon. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time.